start of the golf year, and yet is not really the championship of anything. There's the respect shown to both amateurs and international players, the utter contempt for commercialism, and the enthusiasm of the galleries among the most knowledgeable in golf. Augusta is also one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. Membership is by invitation only. And for many years, the club was run by its autocratic chairman, Clifford Roberts a Wall Street financier who had total control over the place, including the comings and goings-on, the membership roster. If Roberts decided you were no longer going to be a member, you were history. No letter, no appeal. According to one story, the process went something like this. A member called the club to arrange for a visit and a stay in one of the cabins. The switchboard connected him with Mr. Roberts, who informed him that he was no longer a member. For what reason, Cliff? The astonished man asked. Non-payment of your bill, said Roberts coldly. But I never received a bill, the member protested. Exactly, said Roberts, and he hung up the phone. One of the most prominent members of Augusta National was President Dwight D. Eisenhower. But even the President of the United States, the former supreme commander of all the Allied forces in Europe in World War II, couldn't intimidate Clifford Roberts. A case in point was a tree on the 17th hole that Ike drove into with stunning regularity. He frequently protested the existence of the tree, requesting time after time that it be cut down. Roberts wouldn't hear of it. But he did acknowledge the president's efforts by naming it Ike's Tree. The people who run the Masters place great emphasis on decorum. You can imagine their reaction when they learned that a bunch of college students had hired a stripper to streak the 16th green on the final day of the Masters. Cliff Roberts had heard that she was going to run out of the gallery as soon as she saw the red light of our camera go on, recalls Frank Cherkanian of CBS Sports. The kids had her payment and bail money all set. I told Cliff not to worry, that we'd just disconnect the light and they'd never know when the camera was on. That didn't satisfy him. He told the security people that he wanted her arrested immediately and he stressed that he personally wanted her entrance badge. She never did appear. And I've always wondered just where Cliff thought she was going to be wearing her badge in the first place. The 155-yard par-3 12th hole at the Augusta National is one of the best holes in the world. It's also one of the most terrifying. The shallow green is guarded in front by Ray's Creek and a bunker. There's another bunker behind the green, along with the usual assortment of flora and fauna, which looks beautiful until your ball sails merrily into it. But what really makes the 12th so damned hard is the wind, which gusts and swirls and makes the club selection maddening. Curtis Strange came to the hole in the 1988 Masters, hot on the heels of four-putting the ninth hole. Hot is the operative word here, for few players loathe things like four-putting as much as Curtis. With the pin cut to the right-hand side of the green, a pin position Jack Nicklaus says he never, ever shoots at, Curtis aimed at the center of the green and as he says, pushed it perfectly. The ball dropped in for an ace, only the third on that hole in Masters history. When he reached the green, Curtis took the ball from the cup and tossed it into Ray's Creek. This thrilled the fans, but upset some writers who thought he should have given it to Golf House or Horde or whatever. One suggested he should have saved it for his grandchildren. I hope I have something better to leave my grandchildren than a golf ball. Curtis replied, logically enough. In 1980, Tom Weisskopf came to the 12th hole in the first round. 
the pin was cut in the easiest position, front-left. And for a change, there was no win to complicate matters. Weisskopf, a player who lived for the Masters, took an eight-iron, hit the green, then watched in dismay as the ball checked back off the green and rolled into the water. He took a drop, hit again, and watched as the ball tumbled into the creek. By the time the smoke had cleared, he had made a 13, the highest score on either a par 3 or a par 4 in Masters history. As she watched her husband's hopes wash down Ray's Creek, Jeannie Weisskopf began to cry. A friend, Tom Culver, put his arms around her and asked, Jeannie, you don't suppose he's using new balls, do you? Homero Blancas is the son of a greenskeeper at the River Oaks Country Club in Houston. He won his share of tournaments on tour in the late 60s and early 70s, but his greatest acclaim came from his play at the University of Houston, where he was a legend, in no small part because of his performance one year at the Premier Invitational, a college tournament in Longview, Texas. Fred Marty was Blancas's teammate at Houston and a fine golfer in his own right. He had a practice of calling his father during a tournament to let him know how he was doing. He called after the first round to tell his father that he had shot a 61 on the par 70 course. Great playing, Fred, said his father. How many shots does that put you in the lead? I'm a shot back, Dad, Marty said. One of the other Houston guys shot a 60. His name's Homero Blancas, and he's a hell of a player. Don't worry about it, son, said the father. One hot round doesn't mean a thing. He's bound to blow up. Just play your own game. The next day, Marty called in with the final results. He had shot another 61. Good Lord Almighty, Fred, his father said. I'm proud of you, son. That's just great playing. I hope the blankest boy didn't take it too hard. Not really, Dad, Marty said. Did he stay close? Mr. Marty asked. Sort of, his son answered. We were within seven shots. That's a fine showing, Fred. He has nothing to be ashamed of, said Mr. Marty. I guess not, Dad, said Fred. He shot a 55. Ask players or writers to name the greatest golfers in history, and you get pretty much of the same list. Nicholas, Sneed, Nelson, Hogan, Jones, and so on. But when you ask who had the best swing or was the best shot maker, you add at least one new name to the list. Tommy Bolt. He was born in Haworth, Oklahoma, a place he described as so damn deep in the woods they had to pipe light in. Sadly, Bolt never gets the credit he deserves for his skills. Lee Trevino ranks him among the five best players he ever saw. Tom Weisskopf, another artist with his clubs, is still in awe of Bolt's ability to fashion shots. But most people think of him as terrible-tempered Tommy Bolt, or Thunderbolt for his, how should we say this, willingness to wear his emotions on his sleeve. The truth is, Tommy has always been good copy and did a lot to popularize the game in the 1950s and 1960s. That he isn't in the World Golf Hall of Fame is a shame. Leading the 1958 U.S. Open, he stormed into the press room one day looking for Tom Lobaugh, who was covering the championship for a local paper, the Tulsa World. Summoning all his righteous indignation, he berated Lobaugh for reporting that Bolt was 49 instead of 39. Sorry, Tommy, it was a typo, said Lobaugh. Typo, my ass, said Bolt. It was a perfect four and a perfect nine. Bolt had a well-deserved reputation for throwing clubs, although he always protested that if he threw and broke as many clubs as people claimed, the entire damn equipment business in this country would have spent their time making clubs for old Tom, don't you see? Anyway, the story goes, 
that in one tournament, Tommy came into the final hole facing a 120-yard shot to the green. His caddy handed him a three-iron. What the hell is this, son? He fumed. I can hit this club almost 200 yards. I, I know, sir, the caddy said. But it's the only iron you have left. You broke all the rest. In 1958, Tommy won the U.S. Open, a championship he described as a Ben Hogan-type tournament. That win would be the high point of his career. You could make the case that the low point came two years later when the Open came to Cherry Hills Country Club in Denver. Nearing the close of a particularly frustrating round, Bolt came to the 18th hole and promptly snap-hooked two drives into a pond. With that, he strode to the front of the tee, studied the offending driver, and launched it into the pond to the considerable amazement of the gallery. In the crowd was a young boy who dived into the pond and surfaced with Bolt's driver. Tommy approached the boy, money clip in hand, anxious to show his appreciation and check the club for damage. He never got the chance. The kid took off like a broken field runner, raced through the gallery and clambered over a fence, the roar of the crowd echoing in his ears. To this day, Tommy insists he didn't mean to throw the club into the water. It was just a hot day, and those worn grips got a little slick on old Tom, he recalls. Hell, I was just taking a practice swing for myself, and the next thing I knew, that little beauty was sailing out over the water. It was a shame. I really liked that club, too. Ireland's Harry Bradshaw had perhaps the most divine, if unique, training for the game of golf. When Bradshaw was an adolescent, an elderly local priest, Father Gleason, saw that he had a talent for golf. Each evening, they would go to a hole at Delgany with clubs, balls, a folding chair, and the scriptures. Once there, Father Gleason would select a spot a hundred or so yards from the hole. Harry.